Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to episode 29 this week. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, what's up, buddy? Good, and it's good to have you in the Global Energy Media Studios for once to do this show, and so... uh, Glad to have you in studio today, Josh. Yeah, man, it's good to be here. I've enjoyed the week so far. Well, let's uh, let's get into it. We got two articles we have before our good friend uh, David Blackman comes on. The first one is uh, going to be surrounding the Permian. We have the top five Permian companies uh, on around 9.4 million acres in the Permian Basin. So we have a, a little layout here of some of those companies. We're going to detail some of the acreages that each of them hold. Uh, what stood out to you the, the most in the article, Ryan? Yeah, you know, I think Josh, for me, if you look at the, um, you know, that kind of headline that you know the top five hold nine point four million acres, you, you, you know, obviously that's a lot. But then if you look at the little chart, I think they have the top seven or eight, and you see that there's a lot of big names. You, you know, Apache, Oxy, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, um, and at the very bottom is Energen, and Energen is a very active company out in Midland and uh, the Permian Basin. I didn't, I didn't realize that they had that much acreage. I knew they were really active, but I didn't really realize how much acreage they actually had compared to some of these. Really big companies. And the other thing that stood out, Josh, was if you look at Apache, who, according to this article, is the top acreage holder with 3.1 million acres. Um, and they've 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 uh, had 3,381 drilling permits approved since 2012. The fourth largest acreage holder is ConocoPhillips with about a million acres. And they've only had 734 mm. drilling permits approved. And so that, that, that number kind of stood out to me. I don't um, – not really sure what's going on there if um, – if it's a different, a different strategy or maybe ConocoPhillips bought m- more mature acreage, I'd have to go back and look at what they purchased and what's going on there. But but that those two things really stood out at the top for me. Yeah, just looking at it, the, one of the things that, that kind of piqued my interest was uh, ExxonMobil has less than half of ConocoPhillips, and they have done uh, almost triple uh, the amount of drilling permits approved since 2012. Uh, that just seems – seems, uh, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, they have a lot less than ConocoPhillips. Um, and as we mentioned, Conoco has a million acres and 730 per, uh, per, 734 permits approved. And then also EOG, which is right above them in the list, has basically double the acreage and only has 824 permits um, compared to ExxonMobil's 1,872. So you can see here different strategies. But if you go down to the bottom of the list, uh, Energen, 147,000 acres, the lowest in the list by far, 1,647 permits approved. Um, and so you look at that and you go, okay, that's, that's up there. You know, they're, they're active and they're and, and if you're out in the area, you know, of energy and you hear of them, you know, they're not a big name and you know, they're really active, but I, I just didn't realize that they were, um, as far as acreage holdings in place, they had this much of, so, you know, kudos to them because they're, they're, um, obviously doing something well to compete with these guys and be on this type of list. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder too, uh, some of these areas are going to be more oil rich. So, uh, possibly, I guess. Some of these, uh, some of these companies may have some hotter spots out in the Permian that's allowing them to do more drilling. Yeah, and so I, you know, what would be interesting with a chart like this is if you went back from 2012 and you could you could parallel, you know, how much acreage these companies had in 2012 and where it was and how it's evolved um, going through the the big up cycle and then down to the bust cycle, um, just to see. You know, we talked about on the show several times now. 
you know, you, I think it was just last week or two weeks ago, we had a story about Oxy, and they were swapping some land. And so, um, you know, I, I would be curious to see over the past, you know, five years here, what's happened with these positions and how they've moved around. And, um, again, there is some questions. Maybe we could do a follow-up episode on, like, the ConocoPhillips stuff. You know, what? why, why is their drilling um, permit ratio so low? And I, don't, I just don't know that off the top of my head. What did you think about Exxon adding so much Permian acreage uh, in the last week or so? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's it's what we're going to continue to see. You know, if you're in a good position, um, then you're going to hold on to your permanent acreage, obviously. But um, Exxon, as we talked about before, because they have a good downstream business, they can make a lot of money on that. And so they can be a little bit more risky with what they buy on the upstream side. And so, um, you know, they picked up, I think it was uh, 22,000 acres. And so, you know, it's you know, what they're going to be able to do. Companies like that right now with the low prices will be able to, to position themselves a little bit better than someone who just has an upstream segment. Hmm. Yeah, well, I thought that was, uh, that was a good move back, Son. Well, we have our good friend Sergio. He wrote a, a really good article uh, for the San Antonio Business Journal. And uh, the title of the article is Top of the List, Most Active Companies Drilling in the Eagleford. Uh, looking through some of, the, some of the things he has, we have a chart here. We're going to detail some of, the, some of the folks that are um, doing really well in the Eagleford. But, Ryan, looking through the article, what did you think about what Sergio was discussing? Well, Josh, we've had Sergio on two, three times a month, every month for the past few months, and we've continued to ask him about Cabot, and uh, he refuses to give us an update. <laughs> and yet here's an article, and he's got Cabot ranked as the number ninth, um, what's he call them, companies drilling in the Eagleford, and, but he can't give the Texas Oil and Gas podcast a Cabot update. So I was a little disappointed in that, but um, good to see that Cabot finally got his due. No, this is good. If you look at it, there is some parallel, obviously. If you look at the top producer, no surprise, it's EOG Resources, and if you go back to our previous article, they were ranked, I think, number uh, six or something like that, five or six in the Permian. And, and, you know, I've said before, EOG is one of those companies that just does it right and does it well. ConocoPhillips, there they are, number six on on Sergio's list for Eagle for Companies, and they were number three or four on the Permian. So you see some overlap, but you also see a lot of disparity, okay? So number one, we said it was EOG. Number two is Chesapeake. Chesapeake really st- stands out because they are they're in tough times right now, and so it'll be curious to see if Chesapeake can hold on to this acreage. You know, Chesapeake historically went a lot heavy on the gas plays, and uh, it bit them. But they do have some acreage in 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 the Eagleford, obviously, and they're very active down there. So, but but outside of that, you know, their, their cash ratio is a little bit tight right now. So I'm not sure if they're going to sell this. I think the CEO recently said that all their assets would be potentially up for sale if need be. Um, number three, Marathon. Marathon's another good company. But you got Sanchez Energy, Carrizo. So the list, the top five, um, there is a little bit of similarity with EOG one, ConocoPhillips six. But then outside of that, it's a fundamentally different list. And so you know, different companies have different strategies that they're trying to execute on yeah we uh, we talked too about the uh the displacing Carnes county uh sergio said was the the primary county uh or the main county doing the most uh barrels of, of crude oil and it had been that way for a long time and midland county just came in and uh took its spot with 7.6 million barrels of crude oil in july um Carnes was at 5.5 million and uh sergio he was surprised to see that because he said that uh, Carnes had really maintained that top spot for, for quite some time. And uh, Midland County came in and, and um, doing really well. And uh, there's also, uh, I was looking at some of the stuff he says about Carnes, it located 60 miles south of San Antonio, liquids rich window. The Eagleford Carnes County emerged as a hot spot in the early days of shale. And it's been hot ever since. But Midland County's really stepping up 
as a as a hot spot in the eagle for and has been for a couple months now yeah and you know if you go back and you look at the prices obviously at one point you know gas is where you want to be at that was kind of the the hot topic and you know oil prices were low and then as gas you know the bubble burst and went down and oil's come back up the thing the good thing about the eagle for is is that um you, you can have some spots where you can get some mix now recently we've seen with like pioneer that if your oil to gas ratio is a little bit off you know the analysts just make you pay and give you bad reviews and so you know you're going to see companies at least for right now that are going to try to focus on drilling holes if it's in their portfolio at least they're going to drill holes that are going to be heavy on the liquid side and try to stay away from the gas just because the analysts are making you know like again they could be like pioneer their capex with their they're a little bit behind on some of the rigs they had a little bit of a problem and then their oil gas ratio was off and so uh, the analysts you know really really crucified them um I'm, you know again we'll, we'll see i guess in a year or two if that was worth it or not but um but yeah so I, i'm not surprised because right now with the with the um the high oil prices that we saw all the capital money that went into their you know companies had to drill the stuff in uh, the Eagleford was a little bit more legacy, so not surprised to see the shift. I don't know, um, you know, as we go long term, you know, 10, 15 years from now, what we'll look at. But but for the short term, it's obviously going to be the Permian. Yeah, yeah, and he he makes that comment as well. Uh, the Permian is kind of everything's everything's booming. So Ryan, with the that's the two main articles we have. David's about to be on in uh, a few minutes. So uh, is there anything we wanted to hit? Any uh, any news with some conferences or? Anything like that coming up in the near future? Yeah, just remember that I will be at the um, Society of Petroleum Engineers Conference, which is the 9th through the 11th, I believe. And so that is in San Antonio. And so if you can come down there for that, I would love to meet up with you. I know that I think Sergio uh, mentioned last week that he's planning on being there. And so, um, you know, on top of that, I've been seeing there's a lot of good traction online for that conference. So that's um, the 9th through the 11th in San Antonio. There's technical conferences, networking. I think Mark McCore I saw was going to be there. So a lot of folks will be down there in San Antonio. On top of that, Josh, there is some other events. The Money Show, I think I mentioned last week. Um, the Money Show is in Dallas. It's free to attend. I'll link to that in the show notes if you want to attend the Money Show, if you're interested in, in investing in stocks and things like that. Um, but yeah, besides that, I think that's it. There is some uh, events in Midland I'm looking at. Uh, the Roseland Oil and Gas Conference, which we had them on. I think I'm going to that. And then aside from that, that that's I think there may be one hard energy conference. But uh, you know, kind of it's kind of getting busy here in October, November, trying to wind down the year um, as we get ready to go into 2018. Yeah, uh, Ryan. One thing uh, you mentioned something about a solar conference uh, a while back, and. Uh, I was wondering, is that something that's going on this year, or is that early next year? I don't know if you mentioned the show or not. That was I was supposed to go to Vegas two weeks ago, and they just canceled my flight. So no, I um, I didn't get to go to Vegas, unfortunately, make my first appearance in Vegas. But uh, that would have been nice. So no, nope, that's um, that's it. So let's get on. Uh, well, let's bring on David Blackman now and uh, go over his articles. And remember, just for the listeners' point of view, uh, Shell Mag, we pull these uh, three articles from da- uh, David's. Daily dozen things you know about oil and gas. They're there on Shell Mag every day, and then we pull another piece that he's written himself from either Shell Mag or Forbes uh, or OilPrice.com. He's all over the place, so be sure to check him out. Well, David, it's good to have you on again. How are you doing? Doing great, man. It's a beautiful day in North Texas. Yeah, yeah, nice and nice and cool weather over here. Uh, yep. Well, let's get into it. Exxon made some headway this week, or some news, I should say, by adding some acreage to its permian assets. What was your takeaway? 
Well, it's just, you know, uh, more of this rush to the Permian and, and companies that are already there trying to expand, uh, you know, these 22,000 acres are largely adjacent to some of ExxonMobil's uh, and XTO's pre-existing acreage out there. So, it's, you know, it's a, just a for Exxon, you know, for a lot of smaller companies, 22,000 acre acquisition, it's a big, big deal. For Exxon, it's kind of what they call a bolt-on acquisition of, of adjacent properties where they can just improve economies of scale. And uh, and so it just makes total sense for Exxon to do that. And uh, I know, uh, you know, you're always glad to see good companies like that to get into, get into these areas in a bigger way. Yeah, I was looking at a report we talked about earlier on the show, actually, that kind of broke down the top, I think it was uh, the top five producers hold like 9.4 million acres in Exxon. They're in there. Um, and what kind of surprised me was is you have, you know, Apache, Oxy, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, kind of all the big names at the, uh, that, that make up that, that top five for 9.4 million. And the very last name on the list uh, of the top eight, I think it is, is Energen. You know, it's just not a name you, <laughs> you, you hear very often. I know they're extremely active. I just didn't realize they had that kind of space. But uh, yeah. you, you expect Exxon to have a big position. But Energen, you know, it was just kind of, kind of surprising to hear, <laughs> to hear that name out there. I know they do good work and they're, they're fast and they're active. But, yeah, I, I, I guess for me it looks like, and I'm – if, as we go on um, for the rest of the year and into next year, that these these companies like Exxon that, that can do all three parts of the business, upstream, midstream, downstream, they really have the advantage right now because they can make a lot of money on the downstream side and they can yeah. run the risk on an upstream type acquisition that, that maybe someone like an Energen, for say, um, they just can't go out and buy it because the numbers may not be there for them. Yeah, and that, that's the advantage of being fully integrated is you know, companies like ExxonMobil and Shell and BP, when when the uh, upstream part of the industry is suffering from low prices, you know, their refining, their refining segments are making hand, money hand over fist because of the low commodity prices and just, uh, you know, and that's that's why you do it. That's why you integrate, um, you know, in order to cap, capture those profits when one segment of the industry is in a downturn. Absolutely. Well, let's transition talking about the Permian. Um, I saw from your uh, your Shell Mag Daily update that you you shared an article talking about how much oil that's left in the Permian. Uh, what was kind of your your takeaway from this this piece? Oh well, it's just you know, and, it, and of course I, I had run an interview with Alan Gilmer, Drilling Info, about a month and a half ago. You know, and Alan just believes the the Permian's just this basically inexhaustible resource, and he's probably right. Uh, but IHS uh, came out with a with a new analysis that they'd conducted. Um, using a proprietary methodology, and uh, their estimate is 60 to 70 billion barrels of recoverable oil, a technically recoverable resource in the Permian today. And that's just what we've discovered, you know, at this point. And there's going to be more discoveries as we go through time. Apache just, you know, had an 8 billion barrel discovery last year in the Delaware Basin. So um, to put that in perspective, the biggest oil field ever discovered in the United States is Prudhoe Bay. And since 1977, over 40 years, Prudhoe Bay has produced 12 billion barrels of oil. So the IHS assessment is that there's at least five Prudhoe Bays remaining to be produced in the Permian Basin, uh, which is a lot of Prudhoe Bays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a lot of oil. Now let's break down this term "discoverable" uh, or I'm sorry, "recoverable" for the for the listener, uh, because you know you, you hear that term a lot. And so, when they're saying "recoverable oil," uh, what does that mean? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's recoverable using uh, current technology. Right. So, so we have technology today that exists, and you know, um, 
the, the IHS believes that just with re, the, the technology we have today, there's that that many billions of barrels of oil that we could get out of the ground eventually. Uh, the reality for the oil and gas industry is that technology advances constantly, every day. You know, all these service companies have big R&D divisions and they're just constantly improving their products and their technologies and services. And, and so really, when, when you see these kinds of estimates, they're actually pretty conservative estimates because right. uh, a year from now, I, I, you know, and we've seen that in, during this downturn uh, since 2014, since the price fell out, uh, companies have basically doubled how much oil they can recover out of each well they drill in the Eagle Ford Shale and the Permian Basin in these shale formations. And that's because of improvements in technology just over three years, you know? And so it's just that kind of thing, that kind of advancement in technology and processes is constant in this industry. So 60 to 70 billion barrels is an awful lot of oil, but it's really a pretty conservative estimate. There are many times that number of barrels of oil actually in those formations that with improved technologies and processes can you know hopefully be recovered in future years right and, and that's why i want you to break it down um because i was reading a report i don't remember if it was, it was a book or a report or whatever i was reading something one time and they were talking about uh some position somewhere i don't remember if it was a barnett or wherever it was and they knew for a long period of time that they that they had you know a high reason to believe that there was gas oil or whatever it was in that area but they never would really actually call it recoverable because it just it just wasn't possible at that time and so when you hear right. someone like alan gilmore say hey you know what if we're never hit the bottom of this thing well, that's because, like you just said, okay, well, this is the estimate today, but if tomorrow someone came out and said, well, guess what, we can get this much more oil now because of this new technology, those numbers would, would balloon even higher. And so, um, right. you know, it, 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 you know, we've, I think we talked about it at least offline and maybe online some or on Twitter or something, me and you were talking about peak oil and, the, and just kind of the, the myth. And it's still out there, the peak oil, you know, the peak oil yeah. folks, they're saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to run out of oil. We're, and there's a, there's a website dedicated to this. You know, we're going to run yeah. out of oil, and it's like, God, I mean, I guess theoretically anything's possible, but it's really just it's really hard with just a little bit of simple research looking at how we, we, we gauge these numbers um, to say, God, man, we're going to run out of oil in, in, in my lifetime or your lifetime or my kid's lifetime. That It just seems almost impossible. Well, let me give you a great example of what the peak oil people do, you know, in their calculations. They, they look at these government estimates of, of oil in place in the various formations around the country. And the, the U.S. Geological Survey performs these estimates periodically. And, and they did one on the Eagle Ford Shale in 2010. It said at that point in time, seven years ago, there were four billion barrels of oil in place that were technically recoverable in Eagle Ford Shale. Well, the reality is that in that rock today, there are well over 100 billion barrels of oil in place in that formation. And if USGS updated that estimate today, it would probably be 20 to 30 billion barrels of oil in the Eagle Ford Shale, just as a very conservative guess. And so, but these peak oil people, they say, well, you know, I mean, the official government estimate is just 4 billion barrels in Eagle right. Ford Shale. Well, no, <laughs> no, right. that's not what's there. You know, that's just one guess seven years ago. So it, it's a completely disingenuous exercise. They've been wrong for over a century. Peak oil theory has been around since the late 1800s, and it's always been wrong, and it's always going to be wrong in the future. So 
Yeah, and you know, I, there's obviously people in the movement who have good intentions, um, but there, but at some point, if you just sit down and just do a little bit of math, you go, okay, yeah, yeah, we. we We've missed the boat here on this one, but I want to turn finally to your final piece. We talked about uh, getting you know these articles we talked about from your uh, daily post that you put for Shell Bag, but you also write a feature post, I think, once a month for the magazine. Is that right? Uh, yeah, once every issue. It's well, a bi-monthly publication. Okay, once every issue. And this time you, you did one um, from September the 14th, I'm pulling, um, Steer, a new kind of trade association. And so I love reading these pieces. Let's just kind of break down for the listeners um, what made you reach out to Steer and, and what made you want to do this piece. Well, it's just such a success story for the industry. Uh, and Steer is the South Texas Energy and Economic Roundtable. We, uh, I say, we a group of us in in the industry uh, in the public affairs realm, uh, worked to create that association in 2011, 2012, and get it up and running. And the reason was uh, we were, you know, the the Eagle Ford Shell at the time was really ramping up rapidly, and there. The industry was experiencing a lot of these local issues with local communities around traffic and transportation and noise and, you know, all those kinds of local issues that the state trade associations based in Austin, you know, really aren't set up to deal with. They're, they're the, and they're wonderful associations, Texas Oil and Gas Association, TIPRO, the Texas Alliance. They're the most effective set of statewide trade associations of any state in the country. They're just fantastic, but they're not staffed and they weren't created to deal with these kind of local impact issues in the communities. And we'd had a very bad experience of the Barnett Shale uh, at the, around the turn of the century uh, with the industry not effectively addressing issues up there in the Barnett and decided, you know what, the Eagle Ford's too important um, to not properly deal with these issues. So we created uh, steer and hired a, a fantastic guy named Omar Garcia, who's you know been in South Texas his whole life and knows knows those communities and knows the people and the culture down there, and uh, it's just been incredibly effective uh, at dealing with these issues, helping these companies, you know, do the outreach that you need to do and the relationship building you need to do with leaders in these communities, and. Um, you know, it was great to be able to write that piece for Shell Magazine because uh, I just, you know, I played kind of a, a role in getting it started. And uh, and uh, here we are five years later, and it just was really cool to be able to tell that success story in that way. How has industry responded to this organization? You know, we've talked about the show before. You know, we want, we want to get the message out there. We want people to understand that this is, that we are, we're, we're, we're people, we're real, we're not just big, big, big old um but, you know, as we know, working with some of these oil and gas companies, it's hard to kind of penetrate through the bureaucracy and get to the people <laughs> you need to. Um, how, 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 were, how was the industry receptive to steer? Well, you know, it's actually a very interesting thing because you're right, it always is hard. But uh, because these companies and, and people in the companies had actually been on the working group that created the association to begin with, there was already a built-in level of membership ready to start paying dues and get that thing going. And, and uh, what was so interesting to me in, in interviewing Omar and the rest of the staff over there about, you know, how hard it's been in the downturn for them, they've actually, one of two trade associations I'm aware of that has actually increased their membership uh, during the downturn, which is incredibly rare and very difficult to do. And it's just because they're providing such outstanding value 
down there in South Texas, and 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 they're respected by everybody, not just the industry, but you know the communities. You know, understand that they're an honest broker. The media, you know, the San Antonio Express and all the newspapers down there called them uh, proactively to to talk to them about stories they're doing, and it's just a, you know, it's it's just been been one of those things where it's it's the right structure it's the right organization and and it's the right focus on the right issues and it's really been a benefit to to the whole region well that's good to hear we'll probably need to get the folks from steer on the texas and gas podcast sometime just to kind of uh expand our listeners where uh region yeah. what's going on there but but in the meantime yeah. we will link to your piece from shellmag.com so the listeners can go and read that wonderful piece that you did um so shellmag.com oilprice.com uh, Forbes World Oil, I believe, and uh, dbdailyupdate.com. dbdailyupdate.com. I think the best service that you do to the industry, if I can say, is your daily curation of news, the dozen things. It's a great spot just to wake up. As you told me, you're, you're kind of like a kind of got that farmer's blood. You wake up early and get <laughs> get get it out for us folks. And so I like waking up and on LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever I'm at, I can go there and see those dozen things and kind of figure out, okay, this is what I need to check into before I start my day. So thank you for that and all the stuff you do. dbdailyupdate.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. And obviously, you're active on Twitter. And where what's your Twitter handle again? Uh, at GD Blackman. At GD My Blackman. First name is actually George. Okay. Well, we'll call you George or David or whatever. Mr. <laughs> Blackman, you just tell us. But yeah, we'll link to all that. We'll link to your articles. We'll link to this piece from Shell Mac. And uh, David, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.